Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. In the last several months, both Rabbi Ilana Rabishaw and I have had the privilege of spending very precious days in the state of Israel since the war began on October the 7th with the horrific attack that resulted in the deaths of over 1,200 Israelis, the wounding of so many more, and the catastrophic events that have transpired since that time, there has been this tremendous sense of disconnect and anguish at the same time that we all kind of feel as we think about Israel. There is, I think, in some respects, this distance that the oceans and the seas that separate us from Israel cause us to feel and a sense of lack of appreciation for what the reality is for Israelis and our brothers and sisters who have had to endure so much in these last days and weeks and months. At the same time, there is a heaviness that so many of us feel for all of the tragedy that is taking place in the land of Israel, a sense of anguish for those lives that are lost, a sense of wonderment about the suffering not just of Israelis in the north who are displaced or those in the south who have lost their homes and their families, or those in the middle of the country who scurry constantly in and out of bomb shelters depending on when rockets are sent their way, and also an anguish for the tragedy of the humanitarian catastrophe that is taking place in Gaza as a result of this war. So many complicated feelings as we see what's transpiring on college campuses, as we watch different news outlets report on the war in different ways, and a sense of wishing we could just be there, a sense of wanting to just go and give a chibuk, of giving a hug, so that we can feel that sense of connection and that our prayers and those of our people who are living this anguish in Israel can be one. And so the privilege that Ilana and I had of visiting Israel in these last months is an experience that we want to bring to you. And so the essential question we will be exploring together today is, what does it feel like to be in Israel? And so, Ilana, it's wonderful to have you as part of our Essential Questions show today. It's great to be here with you today. I'm excited to get to talk about Israel. So, in the year and a half that you have been part of the Temple Bethel community, Ilana, you have discovered that our congregation is certainly tinged with blue and white. And there is a strong Zionist sense that is part of our congregation's ethos and part of our community's sense and sensibility as well, which doesn't mean that we don't embrace the complexities of what is happening or that we agree or support any of the decisions that are made by any particular government, but our love and commitment to the state of Israel is strong. Tell us a little bit about your own upbringing and your own formation of your Zionist identity. You know, it's interesting. On October 7th, when we had our first clergy conversation after the war had broken out, there was a brief conversation about, well, are we going to put the chair back on the bima, talking about the chair with the flag of Israel in 
remembrance and acknowledgement of those held hostage. And it was the first time that I had experienced a chair in memory. I remember when Gila Chalit was captured. I remember the several years that we spent waiting. I spent a Havdalah with his family. But to have that chair be a no-brainer at the synagogue reminded me on October 7th in the midst of the pain what it was that I loved so much about Temple Bethel. I've been a Zionist since before I knew the word. I grew up going to Israel several times with my family. I traveled and I went to summer camp, both primarily English-speaking summer camp and Hebrew-speaking summer camp during the Second Intifada. Actually, Rafi Ellenson, Nomi Ellenson, my sibling and I were the only four one summer that spoke English during the Second Intifada at the Camp Ramah day camp. And I remember that that was okay because the most important thing was being in the land of Israel, eating Jerusalem bagels that were fresh out of an oven and getting to smell and feel and experience what it meant to be a part of Israel. I spent a semester in college at the University of Wisconsin studying biblical archaeology and really diving into what the land of Israel meant, not just from the Jewish and the biblical perspective, but from the archaeological history side, that there is so much to the land of Israel that has been layered on tell after tell, and it makes up some of these hills, all of the all of the history. And then, of course, there are the people of Israel. There are the Israelis who are truly Israeli. And they're the people of Israel that are how we all as Jews make up part of the people of Israel, where my Judaism gets to be counted as part of what it means to be is Israel. And the land, the people, and the modern state are pieces of this much larger whole. And as I've grown up, I've realized that in different moments in time, I get to celebrate, I get to wrestle with, and I get to engage with one of or all of these three pieces of Israel. And my Zionism is actually just how I get to show and demonstrate being patriotic for the land and state of Israel being a non-Israeli. It's interesting that growing up in the house of a rabbi who deliberately took you to spend significant amount of time in Israel, that just being there and absorbing the life and the pulse of the culture was part of what helped form an attachment for you to Israel. For me, it was not so dissimilar. I remember as a little boy being told about my Zaidi in Canada who had raised thousands and thousands of dollars to plant thousands of trees in Israel and how proud I was, uh, wondering if I would actually get to go to Israel and visit his trees. I didn't understand that there wasn't a plaque under each tree that he had planted. But the other thing that I also remember is that my Zaidi bought an Israel bond for me every year on my birthday. And I never really knew what happened to those bonds. They went into the safe deposit box, but it ended up being a very useful investment. When my parents realized when I was about 12 years old that none of my sisters or I would need braces, they took all that money they had saved for orthodonture and decided to take us to Israel for a tour in the summer. And I remember that trip so clearly in a couple of ways. One is 
I remember that Israel was kind of like a playground. It was an amusement park uh, to me. I didn't really get it because I was young. I was 12. And at the same time, I still remember things that the guides taught us about the complexity of what it is to deal with the Palestinian issue. I remember being on the bus and having the guide try to have us solve the problem and to realize how complicated and how complex the issues were. And so when I got into journalism in high school, and I was in college at the beginning of the first intifada, for a number of weird reasons, I ended up a philosophy and religion major, and I was in the middle of New York State at Colgate University, and I said, you know, I should probably spend a little time in Israel checking out all of the things that I was assuming were true about Israel, but that I didn't really know. And so having spent a year at the Hebrew University, where thankfully I met Amy, uh, which was the best part of the year, uh, and also had the opportunity to really delve into Jewish learning and Jewish practice, I really got a sense of an appreciation for the energy, the magic of that state, which doesn't necessarily mean that I subscribed to every and any particular decision that a particular government or prime minister might make, but there was a love for the land. There was a love for the complexity and the dynamism of the place, the spirit of Israel that became kind of infectious to me. And it didn't mean that I didn't embrace and want to learn more about the complexity of the challenges that Israel faced, but that love was secure. And I think that part of what I learned over time was that if you want to wrestle with someone, you have to love them first or you're just fighting. But because I had been raised with a love for Israel, when I wrestled with what was happening in the history and the challenges that Israel faced internally and externally, I found that that wrestling was out of love and not something that was perhaps more divisive. That's, I think, some people resonate to. So tell me a little bit, Ilana, as you were rolling through rabbinical school, what that was like with your classmates, and did they share the same love of Zionism that you did? I remember one or two months into my year in Israel, my first year in rabbinical school, I was walking up King George Street, which is in Jerusalem, and I was on a limestone, or as we would lovingly call it, Jerusalem stone sidewalk. And to my right was a concrete street with new taxi cabs and new cars and buildings that were up and coming. And to the left were old pop-up stores, but that had modern amenities in them. They had signs that said, you can buy an Apple iPhone here, or you can buy wine in this store. And I couldn't help but think back to any time I was wrestling with Israel during that year, how magical that moment on that sidewalk was. That there is really the old and the new in one. We have the old historic limestone underneath my feet, and I see the new rushing past me, and I see the opportunity to engage in Israeli commerce. And that was not something I ever took for granted living in Israel. And for 
my classmates, many came with, I think, more struggle than feelings of magic and whimsy. Some came with a lot of apprehension and some didn't know what they were walking into. I feel very, very fortunate that I came in excited to spend a year living in Israel and having an opportunity to find my own sense of a normal life in Israel. And at 22 years old to say that I had my own route up through Jerusalem and I had shortcuts to my favorite restaurants and can get to the Kotel without thinking about it. That was not something I ever took for granted. And I don't think that that was the same for much of my class, but when push came to shove, I didn't really care what they thought or felt because I knew what it was for me. I remember when I was in Israel feeling that same sense that Herzl called in his book Alt Neuland, right? The old new land. And that same sense that you describe of the modern state in the midst of the ancient history. I just remember always being in the old city feeling this weird sensation when I would see automobiles on these ancient alleys, like that didn't belong there, uh, that these alleyways where people had tread for hundreds of years, all of a sudden had all this new technology. I remember the first time watching someone stand at the hotel and talk on their cell phone at the same time that there was that magical connection. I think also there was implanted within me this sense of responsibility that I had as a part of the Jewish people that was taught to me kind of early on. Uh, I remember learning about the raid on Entebbe and that in Entebbe, there were all these Jews that were held hostage at the airport. And look, it was a French plane, but the French were like, I'm not sure that's our problem. And there were all different kinds of nationalities of the people who were held hostage. And all of those different nations were like, well, I don't know what we're going to do. And the Israelis said, no, they're Jews. They're our problem. Even though many, if not most of them, were not Israeli, but they were Jews. But as the saying goes, membership has its privileges. And there was this sense of if you're a Jew in the world, we Israelis bear responsibility for you. And at the same time, we in the diaspora bear some measure of responsibility for Israel. I was in Israel for my junior year of college from 1989 to 1990, and then I returned for rabbinical school in 91, 92, and in between was the Gulf War. And there were Scud missiles that were shot from Iraq toward Israel. And I remember talking to my Israeli friends about how abandoned they felt during the Gulf War, that all the American groups that were supposed to come that winter canceled all their conventions. And there was this resentment that Israelis expressed of, oh, it's okay if we have to catch scuds, but not you. And I remembered feeling like, you know, I need to be there for Israel when they're in crisis. And I can't just assume that that's their problem. So I remember in the second intifada when the CCAR had its convention and there were bombs going off all over Jerusalem and suicide attacks in restaurants. The CCR was having its convention in Jerusalem, and there was a lot of question among my colleagues and me as, well, do we go? And for me, it was a no-brainer. Even though I had two small children, of course I'm going to go, because if the only thing that's being asked of me in the 2,000-year struggle of the Jewish people to reclaim their homeland was to stay in a five-star hotel and eat catered food or go to a restaurant, I guess that was going to have to be my burden. And 
at the same time, when this last war began, there was this pull that I felt that I just really needed to be there. Have you ever sort of had that sense of what's your sort of duty to Israel as a Jew who lives in the diaspora? Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned if this is my only burden, then I should be so lucky. And that's how I felt get, having this opportunity to go to Israel in November as part of the inaugural cohort of the Amplify Israel Fellowship, that if I wasn't taking a seat from a reservist trying to get back to Israel, if I wasn't taking a hotel room from an evacuated family, and if I was not going to be a burden, then I had to be there because I can't just say to my Israeli friends, you guys go take care of this. I'm going to be back in a year and eat falafel with you. That that wasn't ever a thought. And during the 2014 situations in Gaza, when a lot of my friends were serving in the army and I was at college, I, I felt in, in my gut, in my neshama that, well, what if I had served? What if I go back and serve? And I, I think about it a lot. And then I remember what I told myself when I was 16 after shooting an M16 with Gedna in Israel, that my purpose as an American Jew and as a Zionist is to be a really strong advocate for the state of Israel from America and to bring and elevate that voice. And I'm really grateful that the Amplify Israel Fellowship exists. It's brought together 13 reform rabbi colleagues to have conversations and opportunities for learning and engagement on how we get to amplify our voice on Israel to be the best and have the strongest voice as Zionists from America using our own skill set. But I think about it every day. What if I moved to Israel? What if I made Aliyah? Would I be better serving the Jewish people and the state of Israel from Jerusalem? I had many of the same questions when I was younger, when I was considering Aliyah and realizing for a whole variety of reasons that my life was better suited to the United States, which is a country I love also with deep passion. At the same time, there were always wonderings about, should I be making Aliyah? Should I be contributing to rebuilding our homeland? And I, I frankly, at 54, I'm still having those internal debates. Uh, when I went to Israel with our federation at the end of November, I think I got home right when I left right when you got home. I was in Tel Aviv and I was just struck by the emptiness of the city. Typically, when I lead Temple's Israel trips in the summertime, Tel Aviv is filled with people. Any morning you wake up in the Tayelet, the promenade along the beach is filled with people jogging and exercising and playing volleyball and swimming. And what struck me was just how empty. There were no people running on the Tayelet. There just weren't all of those people. And I'm thinking to myself, where are all those people? And a friend of mine said, oh, they're all at war. All of those people who would typically be running and exercising and playing volleyball and soccer on the beach, they're all in uniform. They're all called up in service. There's over 300,000 people who are serving. And I was struck by that, but I was having a, a bite to eat with a, a friend of mine, and this other person said, oh, I hear you're speaking English. Where are you from? And I explained that we were part of a group from Boca Raton that had come to visit. And he said, you know, there's a war going on. What are you doing here? 
And I said to him as a perfect stranger, I said, well, frankly, we felt like we needed to come and give a hug. And he looked at me and he said, I could use a hug. And I gave this perfect stranger a hug on the streets of Tel Aviv because it was more than just two individuals embracing. It was a sense of the shared collective peoplehood that we sometimes take for granted. So you can tell us maybe, Alana, a little bit more about what drove you to apply for this fellowship and then tell us maybe what it felt like when you first arrived in Israel, when you got off the plane in those first few hours and days that you were there. So this fellowship was announced at the Recharge Reform Conference in New York City at the end of May, beginning of June, that you and I were at together. And I remember I was around you and I was around a number of colleagues that are just a little bit older than me. And they all said, well, you're going to apply for this fellowship. And I looked at them. I said, I'm just finishing my first year in the rabbinate. I feel busy. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I want to do well at my job. Can I take a breath? And very lovingly, one of my older colleagues said, nope. I mean, you can, but you're going to apply for this fellowship anyways. And I took a deep breath and I thought about what this fellowship was. And it's an opportunity for 13 rabbis who are in their first 15 years of their rabbinate to come together and have conversations about how to strengthen their Zionism. And as I flew from New York back to Florida, I realized that more than anything, that's what I needed. I needed to be around reform colleagues who we're not only willing, but eager to have the conversation about how we get to amplify our voice on Israel and how Israel gets to be a stronger part of my rabbinate. And I can tell you about that first moment of landing and seeing the empty airport. I can tell you about walking through Ben Gurion Airport and seeing the posters of the hostages that if you're on Facebook or Instagram, or on many of the news sources you can see. But I want to tell you about the story of my first dinner. And my first dinner in Israel was in Tel Aviv. It was with my friends Shani and Onit. And they asked a similar question to the random stranger. Why are you here? Actually, they didn't say why. They said, thank you for being here. And I looked at them and I said, of, of course I'm here. Like, why wouldn't I be here? I, I have to be with you. And... I was thinking about in those first few days that everybody was trying to do what they could to help. You said there are 300,000 reservists, which if we were to translate that to American numbers, that's about 10 million Americans joining the reserves. And we heard from Dean a few weeks ago here at the synagogue, and he's the spokesperson for the Israeli police, and he wanted to join the reserves. And his boss said, you are the only spokesperson for the police your service to the state of Israel has to be doing your job. And so my first night in Israel, I was with two of my friends who did not join the reserves. Shani said, listen, I'm over 40. If I were to go back to the reserves, I could go into uniform and they'd have me packing boxes, which is perfectly helpful. But I know that I would be more helpful doing something a little bit different and volunteering as a civilian. So what she did, like so many of our Israeli brothers and sisters, is she had spent the day driving from Tel Aviv down to the south in outside of Gaza. And this is before any of the hostages were released. And this was 
when sirens were going off several times a day. And in the south by Gaza, there were no there were no shelters. But she and many other strangers spent the day picking cauliflower. And they were doing that because one of the things that Israel needs right now are people physically tending to the land because these crops needed to be harvested and there were suddenly nobody to do that job. And farming, it's a familiar part of the Israeli experience dating back to the Chalutzim, this first wave of Israeli pioneers who came to Israel before her establishment and knew that the key to building a successful state was taking care of the land and farming it and agriculture 100 years later are still a very vibrant part of the country. But Shani isn't a farmer and neither were the people that she was with that day. And when I was having dinner with her and she was telling me about picking cauliflower with strangers and then laying down on the ground when they heard alarms and covering their heads and then driving back up and showing me the calluses on her fingers, I said, I thought to myself, there is nothing more patriotic than spending hours in the car to go pick cauliflower to make sure that the land of Israel is still physically there for the next wave of Israelis and Jews in a hundred years from now. And right. that was my that was my takeaway from that first day. That was that even in the quiet, even with the pain it's all going to be okay because people are doing exactly the jobs that they know they can do to support the land right now. I had a similar experience when I flew to Israel. We got in in the morning and got out of the airports, which again, as you described, was eerily quiet and empty. And as you walk down that big ramp that leads into the immigration hall and the customs hall, there's all of the signs of the different hostages. Thankfully, I was there a couple of weeks later. There had already, we were there in the midst of the pause. Thank goodness there were no red alerts while we were there. And some of the hostages were being released while we were there. And we saw little gaps where, thank God, somebody had come home. Uh, but as soon as I got to the hotel, I literally threw my stuff in my room and jumped in a van with a couple of other friends and we drove to a produce processing plant. Typically, they said at that plant, there would be 60 people working. And when I was there, there were only 15. And our job was to prepare heads of lettuce for packaging. And amazingly, what was sad, well, first of all, I don't really know much about pruning heads of lettuce. So I was getting the hang of it a little bit by the end. But that the lettuce was pretty wilted because there had been no one there to really help it uh, get packaged when it was fresh. And I remembered feeling sad that Israelis are going to go to the supermarket and they're not going to be buying fresh lettuce because those days were over. There wasn't anybody there to uh, to prepare that that produce. When you arrived and in your program, did you encounter or deal with the hostages and the whole situation around, which has become its own cause in Israel, the families of the remaining hostages, those who have been released, those who unfortunately discovered that their loved ones who had been held hostage were declared missing or dead. Uh, what was your experience in, in encountering that sort of hostage square by the Tel Aviv Museum and maybe some of the families you encountered? 
on my first day in Israel after dinner, Shani and Onit walked me to Dizengoff Square, which is often this hustling and bustling part of Tel Aviv. And it's a square in mourning right now. There are countless memorials for people that are missing, people who have lost their lives. People were singing. People were just sitting there to be with their loved one who is missing. And at one point I looked at their wrist and I said, oh my God, were you at the Nova Festival, the music festival in the South on October 7th? And they said, no, no, no. One of the things that the Family and Missing Hostage Forum, one of the big organizations in Israel is doing is they have created these bracelets that Israelis are wearing to remember all of the hostages. So the bracelet says, until they're all here, we are all still there. So if you see a colorful bracelet on my wrist, know that it was put on by Israelis to help me not forget the over 100 people that are still missing in Gaza. And on Motzei Shabbat, after Shabbat ended, we were part of a rally with the families of the hostages. And we saw the infamous Shabbat table that had high chairs and set tables and all of these different exhibits to remember those that are kept hostage right now. But perhaps most poignant for me was walking the streets of Tel Aviv, even on the way from our hotel, which was right on the water, in a couple of streets to get to dinner, you would see these giant teddy bears, like as tall as I am, five feet tall teddy bears that are blindfolded and have red stains on them, just sitting on street benches. And it's one of the exhibits throughout the city of Tel Aviv to remember the hostages in pain. And it was startling to see these huge stuffed animals in the middle of the city. But what was more poignant for me was that by the time I got there, which was only six weeks or so after the war had broken out, people had gotten used to them. People were sitting next to the stuffed animal texting on their phone, smoking a cigarette, waiting there until their reservations were ready because while it was eerily empty, the few restaurants that were open, you better had made a reservation because the Israelis were starting to come back out. They were starting to live their life because if there's anything that Israelis want you to know about them is that they as a people are resilient. And thinking about Hostage Square outside the museum, that's one central gathering place. But I can't get the images out of my mind of the whole city, which is still in in shock and is still waiting for all of these people to come home. One of the things that I noticed in Israel is that signs and remembrances of the hostages are just everywhere. The individual placards with the names of those who have been taken are everywhere. Larger displays of the collection of those who are remaining missing are everywhere. And there is this collective sense, which I think in some ways is hard for us as Americans to kind of understand that 
the over 100 people who are missing are collectively owned by the entire country. And it may not be one's individual family member who is missing or held hostage, but everybody knows somebody whose son or father or loved one has been taken captive or was taken captive and thank God released or who lived on one of the kibbutzim that was attacked or God forbid were killed at the supernova festival. One of the things that has gotten lost, I think, in all of the coverage of Gaza is the real terrible set of circumstances that are taking place on Israel's northern border. One of the things that I think is not reported well is the impact on Israeli civil society of what it is to be fighting a war essentially now on more than one front. There are over a quarter of a million displaced people in Israel. And that's an astounding number of internally displaced people. It doesn't get a lot of play because, frankly, Israelis are being really good at taking care of their own in extraordinary ways. Our group went to Boca Raton, South Palm Beach County's sister city, Zikron Yaakov, which is north of Tel Aviv. And there is a well-known high five-star hotel called the Artists Hotel, which typically is where it's expensive to stay. And there is a, a moshav from the northern part of Israel that now lives in Zichron Yaakov at this hotel. So imagine, those of you who are listening, that mom, dad, and two kids have been displaced from their home. They don't have their things. They don't have their schools. They don't have their regular routine. But for week after week, they are living in a single hotel room with no privacy, with no separations. And it's amazing because Israelis have stepped up to take care of their own but it's not like that's easy living. Sure, it's a five-star hotel. They're not living in a squalid camp and they're not living in tents, but it's still really difficult. And I was struck by how proud Israelis were that they were taking care of their own. One of the things that our group did when we were volunteering was to visit Temple Beth El sister congregation in Modi'in, Kilat Yozma, which has adopted the survivors from Kibbutz near Oz in the south, which was absolutely devastated in the attacks and lost, I think, a quarter of the members of the kibbutz. And it's going to take years to rebuild the kibbutz. And so there is a city in the southern part of Israel called Kiryat Gat, and the members of the kibbutz are being resettled in these apartment buildings. And Kilat Yozma, as an Israeli congregation, has adopted these people and to has taken on themselves the responsibility of outfitting their new apartments because they have nothing. And if you think about all what it takes to start life in a new apartment, you need a broom, you need a mop, you need a power strip, you need a space heater, you need saran wrap, you need tinfoil, you need all of these basics. And so we spent an evening packing up these boxes so that they would have little care packages to help them outfit themselves in their new apartments. And there was this amazing pride that Israelis expressed that they were doing what they needed to do to take care of their own, but that didn't make that task any less significant or arduous for those 
on either side of it. Can you tell us a little, Ilana, about what kinds of volunteer elements were part of your trip? Definitely. And before I do, I want to just go back to what you said about the North not being talked about as much. We spent not enough time in Jerusalem for somebody who loves the city of Jerusalem more than pretty much anywhere. But we did go to Shalva, which is an organization that helps families with children who have disabilities. And they have an entire floor that is almost a dormitory style that has been turned into a place for evacuees to live. And in addition to that, they showed us their storage rooms. And what was remarkable about these storage rooms was that they have uh, mattresses for up to a thousand people if things were to get worse in the north. They are ready at a moment's notice to receive a thousand more people. And that, I think, is Israel in a nutshell, that they'll make anything work. They said, you know, we can put mattresses here. We'll put mattresses here. We have enough can- enough canned food for for it all, but that's we're ready for it if we need it. Everywhere we looked, there was this sense of unity uh, on the sides of buildings, at parking garages. There was this phrase, together we will prevail. And that sense of unity, considering what Israel was before the war, where people were talking about the possibility of civil war, there was so much anguish between right and left and all the things surrounding the judicial reforms to see the country come together like this was pretty extraordinary. And that goes back to actually answering your question. Achim Leneshek or the brothers in arms who were leading some of these big protests before October 7th. On October 8th, they took over an entire exposition hall in the basement and used it as a place to gather donations of new hats, new t-shirts, electronics, pets, supplies, everything you could possibly imagine. And we spent an afternoon in the expo with civilians of all kinds, including many who had been evacuated themselves, volunteering by just sorting hats by size. Is it a baseball hat? Is it a warm hat? Is it male? Is it female? Is it for a baby? Is it for a child? That way, anybody who needs can come and get. And for those who are unable to get to Tel Aviv, to the expo, these items are getting put into boxes and getting shipped up to where people can benefit from them. When you were in Israel, Ilana, you talked a bit about one of the real complexities that is also, I think, not understood so well, which is the experience of Arab Israelis. And I wondered if you maybe could tell us a little bit about your visit there and what you learned about what it means to be a non-Jewish Israeli in the midst of this war and in the midst of this conflict. So one of the things that I was perhaps the most anxious about when it came to going to Israel on this mission was that everybody kept saying, this trip will be unlike any other time you've spent in Israel. And in many ways, that was true. But then I feel very lucky that in addition to volunteering, in addition to paying a shiva call, in addition to visiting people in the hospital and learning about ways that civilians take very specific and direct action during wartime, that 
my group actually had time for formal learning moments. So we had the opportunity to learn from several scholars from the Shalom Hartman Institute based out of Jerusalem. And one of them was a man named Mohammed Darwashi. He's an Arab-Israeli who serves as the co-executive director and the director of planning, equality, and shared society at the Givat Chaviva Educational Center, which is a center that creates opportunities for intentional joint initiatives between Jews and Arabs that promotes coexistence by finding and embracing what can bring them together. And Mohammed Darwashi is a teacher, a thinker, and a leader in Israel, and he is Israeli, and he's also Arab. And like countless Israelis, he lost a relative who was serving as a member of the Israeli Defense Forces. His nephew, Awad, was in Gaza very, very early on in October. And when he and his group saw terrorists, Awad said to his group, I speak Arabic. I'm, I'm fine. You guys go back. I'll be fine. And he unfortunately lost his life serving the Israeli people and trying to make Israel a place for him. And one of the things that Mohammed Darwashi said was, like countless Israelis, he felt and heard the call to take care of the countless people that needed to flee their homes. And he found space at the Givat Chaviva Center to welcome people in so it, they would have a safe place during the war. And it felt like if you closed your eyes, these stories could be from any Israeli. And at the same time, there was almost a contradiction because Mohammed Darwashi, until this last unity government, had never been never been represented by the majority government in Israel. And even when I was there in November, he spoke to us about ways he wished that the Israeli flag could change so that the stripes of the Talit and the large Jewish star could be added to so that it, the Israeli flag could represent him as well. And yet, he's still a proud Israeli, despite feeling and often being treated and seen as a second-class citizen in Israel. So in one breath, he would speak to my group of rabbis about what would happen if there was a more inclusive national anthem for Israel. And imagine saying to 11 rabbis, I want to get rid of Hatikva as the national anthem of Israel during a wartime breaks my heart a little bit. But when I thought about it from his perspective, what he's saying is he wants Israel to he wants it to be a place where he too can be a free people in his land. And he spoke so poignantly about our shared goals, especially in the time of war, and how Together, we can all respect differences of opinions. And he's been there for generations. His family has something like 11 generations in Israel, which is amazing. And in a time of war and divisiveness, it's easy to want to see things in black and white. So when I heard him speak and say, we might disagree about which son of Abraham Abraham almost sacrificed, but we can agree that it happened on this soil and we all have claim to it. And we all feel the call to make this country a better place. And that specifically means fighting against the terrorists because Israel needs to be a place of peace. So I asked the congregation if they would help support me 
and supporting Mohammed Darwashi's efforts. And we raised two or three thousand dollars to send to the Gibat Khaviva Center and help him to feed the 150 people that are currently living there as evacuated people. Such an amazing story. I think for us, maybe the most challenging part of our trip was when we went down into Otef Aza to the Gaza envelope to visit some and to see with our own eyes the devastation that took place. We visited Kibbutz Beri, uh, which lost more than 100 members of the kibbutz. And what was so difficult was to walk through this beautiful place. People would ask, well, why would you want to live down there? And the answer that they give is, why wouldn't we want to live down here? And the kibbutz, prior to the devastation that was wreaked there in October, was as beautiful a place. It looks like a resort uh, with little bungalows and townhouses and, and, and villas where people live together. Oftentimes you would have members of the same family, two brothers or sisters who literally live next door, raising their children together as cousins and, and as one family. And then to see what happened there, it just boggles the imagination. We went to one house where, and the guide who who walked us through there, a young man who had grown up on the kibbutz said, look, the only reason I'm able to do this is by dumb chance. It just happened the terrorists didn't come to my house. They went to almost every other house. For whatever reason, they didn't come to my house and I didn't get hurt. And that's why I'm here to talk to you. But that wasn't true for so many other people there. And he walked us into one house and he said, so what they would do is they would shoot a rocket-propelled grenade and blow up the second floor, and everybody would run downstairs into the safe room. Now, the safe rooms are not designed to repel an attack from within. It's only just a more reinforced kind of a room to deal with something that might fall from above. And what they would do in this one house is they would roll a tire into the front of the house and light the tire on fire so that it would create this toxic smoke and light the house on fire so that the family had no choice but to flee. And this family of two parents and four children scurried out the window of their safe room onto the lawn where the terrorists were waiting for them. Two of the kids ran and somehow managed to get next door to their uncle's house. And two were running with their parents and the terrorists captured them. And the parents fell on top of their children to protect them and shield them. And all four died together on the lawn outside of their house. We went to another house also similarly burned where a young woman had been, she was 13, with her mom and her dad in the safe room. And the doors to the safe room aren't bulletproof. And so both of her parents were wounded with five bullet wounds each in their abdomen from shots being fired into the safe room. And she's, they're playing the recordings from the community's WhatsApp where she's reporting, my mom and dad have been shot. We're in the safe room. Come help. And they're shooting through the window. Come help. They've thrown in a grenade. Come help. And the safe room in the house is her bedroom uh, because it's not like you use a safe room. It's someone's room. And uh, she is reporting in these recordings as a 13-year-old of trying to help her parents survive this attack. And you can hear the gunfire in the recordings. It was just devastating to walk through the remains of that place. And then we went to the city of Ofakim, uh, where this very well-known story of Rachel Edri 
took place. Her son, who is a police officer and a former commando, uh, woke up and heard the, the war and scurried into the streets. And there were people who had been killed on either side of the street. And it turned out that he saw that the terrorists were holed up or five of them were holed up in a house. And he says, oh, my God, that's my parents' house. And he assumed his parents were dead, but then they learned that they were being held by these five terrorists in the house. So his mother's diabetic. And so the police managed to kind of get onto the front porch and into like the front of the house. But then there was sort of a barrier between the foyer and the terrorists who were on the stairs and they had their parents sort of held prisoner upstairs. And the mom said, listen, I need my insulin. It's downstairs in the kitchen. You got to let me go downstairs and get my insulin. And so one of the terrorists took a grenade, pulled the pin and held it over her head and brought her downstairs because if the police would have killed him, he'd have dropped the grenade and that would have destroyed the whole house. And so she took her insulin and then she said to the terrorists, you must be hungry. I made cookies last night because we were having company. Do you want cookies? And they said, yeah. And she said, and how about some Coke Zero? And they said, you have regular Coke? And she asked the police officers to prepare a meal for the terrorists who were holding her captive. And eventually the terrorists were able to break into, the, I'm sorry, the commandos were able, the police were able to break into the house and killed the terrorists and, and rescued the family. But to be in her house with her, telling her story uh, was just an amazingly powerful experience because the way that she literally saved her life was to recognize the shared, to try to call on the shared humanity of these people who were doing such inhumane things. Only in Israel. Um, so Ilana, tell us as we get ready to conclude, what did you bring home from your trip? There are two stories of hope that I brought home from my trip that carry with me with me, that I carry with myself as I think about what it means to be an American Jew thousands of miles away from Israel during wartime. And the first was a man from Be'eri who I met towards the end of my first day when I went to the Sheba Medical Hospital. And imagine the end of a first day of a trip. We were starting to get a little bit kvetchy because it was starting to get late and we were in a hospital and we were looking at each other like, really, you're going to put all 15 of us in one hospital room? Like, really? And then we walk in and there are two hospital beds and one bed on the floor and a wheelchair sort of in the middle with this man. And Dr. Rafi Valdan, the chief of surgery for the hospital, said, you have to hear this man's story. And this man, Avidav, is from Be'eri and he spent 45 minutes telling us the story of October 7th. And it took me 25 minutes into his story to realize that he had lost a leg during the story. It took until he got to the point of the story where he was telling us about when the surgeons had to amputate it. Because from the moment he started talking, I was captured by his eyes. And I will for ne never forget this man's face. I will never forget his daughter sitting on the mattress on the ground, looking up at her dad, telling the story of how he lost his leg, how the family lost their house, how he lost his 15-year-old son whose last words were, will you make sure I get buried with my surfboard? 
and how he lost his beloved wife of 33 years. And what he said was, I'm one of the lucky ones. I had 15 years with my son. I had 33 years with my wife. And the message that I want to share with the American people is, I'm going to be okay. My community is going to be okay. These other communities in Otefaza on the Gaza envelope, they're going to need more help than we will. Help them. I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm blessed. And leaving that hospital room in tears, thinking if this man who lost everything is still saying he's blessed and he's going to be okay, then that much the more so will Am Yisrael Chai, will the people of Israel live? Because if he can, that enables us to as well. And the second story that I left Israel with was on Shabbat and 11 rabbis going to Shabbat services is, is an interesting situation because there's the expression, doctors make the worst patients. Rabbis generally make the worst congregants. So about nine of us were sitting in the very last row of the sanctuary we were kibitzing. We were talking with Rabbi Don Gore, who is a retired rabbi in Tel Aviv. And we were just talking. And Rabbi Hirsch was about to give the Dvar Torah. He had just been called up by Rabbi Meir Azari, who's the reform rabbi of the synagogue, when all of a sudden, every Apple Watch and every cell phone start buzzing. And we all had the same app, which gives you a three-second head start before you hear a siren. It was just about six o'clock in the evening, which we had been told is one of Hamas's favorite times to throw rockets because they like to make it on prime time. But I never actually heard the rocket that for that siren. I just heard it vibrate on my phone, on my watch. I heard my watch vibrate. I saw everybody's phone light up and we left the sanctuary. And if you know anything about Israelis, you know that lines are not really something they're good at. But somehow, all 200 people in that sanctuary managed to make it down two flights of stairs and into the safe room. And we did so in the 75 seconds we needed to before. Fortunately, this rocket was vaporized by the Iron Dome. But a couple of days later, there was a rocket that didn't. So we made it into the safe room on time. And once we got into the safe room, I saw this ball pit. I saw that the safe room at Beit Daniel in Tel Aviv was really set up for a preschool because when times are extra stressful, you don't want to have to move the preschoolers every few minutes. So it was set up and the kids knew exactly where they could go color, exactly where the ball pit was to go play with. And we were down there talking for about 10 minutes and we go back upstairs to continue services. And the very next part of the service was welcoming six new people into the covenant of Judaism. And I will never forget that in that moment where we had just been, there was an attack against Israel in that moment. There were rockets being fired towards Tel Aviv, towards Israel on Shabbat. And there were still six people that said, because of this, in spite of all this, I'm choosing to be Jewish. And coming home, I remember that's what it means to be a Zionist, to say not only does the land of Israel have a right to exist, 
But for me, being a Zionist means that I have the opportunity and the blessing to support and to strengthen those people that get to choose Judaism and that are choosing Judaism and blessing us with their learning, with their education, and with their desire to build Jewish homes for the next generation. So even in those painful moments, even going to Israel in a time of war, I left feeling the hope of what the next generation of the people of Israel, both in the land and abroad here in America, can can be. And that's a place of hope and of growth and hopefully of shalom, of peace. I can't say it any better than that. Uh, Ilana, thanks so much for sharing highlights of your experience and your trip. And we hope that, God willing, the rockets and the thunder of war will be silenced soon and that we will be able all to live in peace. Thanks so much. The Essential Questions podcast has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, and Susan Stallone. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website, tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. Share this podcast with your friends. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And we want to know what are your essential questions. Let us know by emailing us at eq at tbeboka.org. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks for listening to the Essential Questions Podcast.